Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 110 of Energy Talks. And today I'm going to be talking to Scott McDougall, who's a senior advisor with the Pembina Institute, and he focuses on carbon pricing, oil and gas, and carbon capture utilization and storage. And we're going to be talking about the Alberta Industrial Emitters Carbon Pricing System. Now, this sounds a bit esoteric and nerdy, and it is, but it's also very important because Alberta accounts for 38, yes, folks, 5 million people account for 38% of Canada's total greenhouse gas emissions. The um, oil and gas sector alone accounts for 26%, and the oil sands sector all by itself accounts for 11 or 12%. So this, if Canada is going to make its climate targets, it all runs through Alberta. If Alberta isn't on side, if the policy isn't in place, if industry isn't doing what's necessary, then Canada does not have a hope of making its climate commitments. And so I, uh, with that as background, Scott, welcome to the interview. Thank you, Mark. I, I've been a big fan of the podcast for years. Uh, happy to be here. Well, thank you. And thank you very much. Um, let's see if we can't uh, attain or uh, be consistent with those lofty standards that kept you as a fan. Well, look, I, I want to start with um, the background to this. There's context here. There's the specific gas emitters regulation that was enacted by the Stelmac government in 2007. There's the carbon competitiveness incentive regulation that came in in 2015, the, the Notley government. The technology incentive emissions regulation that the uh, Kenny government brought in in 2019. And it's all of a piece. There's a, there's a progression here. And I think it's important to start at the beginning. So can you explain to us very briefly uh, how Seeger operated in 2007? Sure. Uh, I'll do my best. Uh, it was uh, initially set up, I, I guess it, it was set up as a, uh, a way to take a look at the uh, historic emissions at uh, a lot of the big industrial facilities, uh, big industrial emitters in Alberta, and uh, set a, a, a little bit of a reduction target uh, for each of those facilities to achieve uh, compared with its historic emissions. So, and, and if they stayed on track with those reductions, then they um, didn't have to pay any compliance. If their emissions were above that track, they had to pay a little bit. If they were below, they could generate credits. Okay, so it, was this a uh, facility specific or was it a benchmark? This one was a facility specific historic system. Yes. Okay, and it, the price was set at twenty dollars a ton in two thousand and seven. Is is that correct? 
Uh, if you say so, that's a ways back. So I can't totally remember. Great. I'm glad <laughs> I, you got I'm, that number. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was, it was $20. Uh, now, the NDP came along in 2015 and replaced it with CCIR. And the big change, as I understand it, is it is the the carbon uh, tax now became uh, they it was benchmarks and industry wide benchmarks, and there were four quadrants, if you will, and depending on where your the emissions intensity of your crude oil fell in there depended on whether you got a credit or you got nothing or if you had had to pay. Um, and it was, I think, hailed at the time as being much more stringent for especially for oil and gas and particularly for the oil sands uh, than than Seeger was. Have I got it more or less correct? Yes, that's right. Uh, it was intended to be uh, sort of a sector level benchmark based uh, approach to setting the emission reduction targets. So the uh, the reduction targets were set focused on sort of the best performers uh, in, in a given sector. That's right. Right. Now, the one thing that CCIR introduced uh, in 2015 that we're going to talk about today is output-based allocation pricing. And this seems on the face of it like a really good idea because the idea is that you, where you have industries that are com uh, have uh, international competitors who may not uh, work uh, who may not be operating in in jurisdictions that have climate policy. Uh, you don't want to disadvantage your domestic industry so much that that the you make them uncompetitive against these other firms, and so you you discount you provide a, a discount uh, on the carbon price to lessen the impact to make them so that they're not rendered uncompetitive. Well, the problem with that is that the oil sands companies, uh, which really don't face any competition and they're not certainly not going to pick up their plant and, and move to Venezuela, you know, uh, they are getting like 80, 90% discounts on their carbon price. So it doesn't matter if the carbon price is 50 or $60, if you're only paying 80% of it, you know, uh, we, we're hearing that some oil sands companies maybe pay under a dollar, or maybe they pay two dollars a barrel. And when barrels at when oil is at eighty to a hundred dollars a barrel, I mean, you know, who what do they really care? And where is the incentive to uh, to to reduce emissions? Uh, now, have I got that more or less correct? Yes, that's 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 right. Um, the uh, the the I guess the policy term for uh, that justifies those free allocations is called carbon leakage, I guess. And it's, you know, the idea that if you have too high of a penalty on, uh, on, on industry, uh, industry's emissions in one place, then they'll, you know, their production will pick up and move to a, another jurisdiction that's got less onerous requirements, uh, or, or pollution. And that pollution will have just moved somewhere else. Uh, and you'll have lost. You'll have lost the emissions off of your books, but you'll also have lost that industry, uh, which is I mean, probably two bad things. Right, and 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 uh, you know what? I think you know. It's not, I don't mean to imply that carbon leakage is not a a legitimate concern because it certainly is. And I the one of the industries that's advanced uh, in support of it is is cement. You know, you could you could have a cement plant in uh, Windsor, and you could lose business to a cement plant in Detroit. 
for example, something like that. And I think that's that's a legitimate concern. I, I guess what I'm arguing here is that the oil sands in particular, it doesn't apply. It should never have applied, in my opinion. Uh, and I think that the uh, frankly, uh, the oil sands industry kind of pulled the wool over the Notley government's eyes uh, on this um, and in their design of, of CCIR. But nevertheless, nevertheless, uh, CCIR was a big improvement over uh, over Seeger. And then along in, in 2019, along come the uh, J Jason Kenney and the United Conservative Party, and they bring in TIER, which is a bit of a mystery to me how much, why it's different. I mean, aside from the fact it goes back to, to uh, facility-specific pricing, I guess that's that's the big difference. But I remember Professor Andrew Leach from the University of Alberta doing a blog post where he said, this is a better system for the electricity sector, but it for the oil sands, it's only two-thirds as stringent or as effective as CCIR was. So it was a step forward for, for the electricity sector and a step big step back for the oil sands. What's your take on that? Well, I I think I'd have to read that blog post. I, I'm pretty interested in exactly what he was getting at in terms of the benchmarks, because I, I, I assume it's the the emissions benchmarks for oil sands where, wherein lies uh, what he was getting at. Um, and I guess looking at the, I mean, the most recently published compliance data from the Alberta uh, industrial carbon pricing system is from 2020. Uh, so I, I, I haven't seen the 2021 uh, results yet. And that's significant because uh, for the 2021 compliance year, uh, Alberta did have some more stringent requirements in tier uh, for the, uh, the oil sands uh, sector. Uh, so, I mean, in 2020, they were, I mean, the largest emitters in Alberta, the source, the largest source of emissions growth in Alberta, and the largest credit generators in in uh, the pricing system uh, in Alberta. So I was hopeful that in 2021 data, I'm still hopeful that in 2021 data, that at least the credit uh, uh, issue, I mean, them being the largest credit generators, which just doesn't seem right in light of their their emissions um that'll start to get fixed and now i guess looking at these updates in in tier that uh, came out yesterday um it looks like they're clamping down a bit more uh on that uh on the oil sand sector again right okay so uh, we should point out that the, the difference uh between ccir and an industry benchmark that the it that really uh, affected the uh, emissions intense the really really bad emissions emissions intense production so uh, combined cycle and and steam CCS has very very high emissions uh, in fact at the top of the of the the list uh, and the oil I want to back up just a bit here so at the bottom of the emissions intensity. Some of the new facilities are like 37 to 40 kilograms of CO2 equivalent for barrel, which frankly is right around the North American uh, uh, crude oil average. I mean, it's not really dirty oil. But on the other end, you've got some that are close to 200. And that's the dirtiest oil. 
I mean, that's incredibly dirty, dirty oil. Some of them are old projects, you know, like a Sin Crude or something that's been around for 30, 40, 50 years, and it's old technology and you know, it's it's cheap, they're making good money on it, but it's it's emissions intensive. And then some of it is this is this uh, like CCS that uses a lot of steam uh, to soften up the bitumen so that you can extract it. And the more steam you use, the higher your steam oil ratio, the more natural gas you're burning and the higher your, your emissions is basically the way it works. So under tier, instead of uh, uh, being judged on a benchmark, now they were only required, every facility was, was supposed to uh, lower their emissions 1% per year. So if you were already one of the the newer projects that you know you you generated credits, well, this is great, but not as many as you would have under CCIR. And if you were one of the dirty producers, well, then you know it really what was your penalty? Where was your incentive to lower? I think that's that's the crux of Leach's argument, as I recall it. Yep, I I I I, I am with that argument. So I guess this this shift now to uh, a Two percent per year tightening rate across the board, uh, and then a four percent tightening rate for the oil sands sector starting in twenty twenty nine. I mean, like that's that's a step, right? It's a step, but I'm not sure that it's enough. I mean, uh, and I'm not entirely sure how this is going to work with the uh, this the proposed federal oil and gas emissions cap. You know, because the you you saw that you saw the federal government's discussion paper, and it said, "Well, how are we going to how are we going to you know in COP twenty six a year ago, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau stood up and said, "I'm going to Im implement an immediate cap on oil and gas emissions." Well, a year later, I've, you know, immediate is a pretty elastic uh, concept, you know, when you're talking to government. So it it wasn't immediate at all. But the problem is he came back. He didn't have any, he didn't know how he was going to do it when he made the announcement. He came back and then the federal government in the spring put out a paper and they said, well, we're proposing one of two ways. E either we'll do more carbon tax, we'll, you know, uh, we'll use a carbon tax system, which we've already got, and I guess presumably be more stringent, or we'll bring in a cap and trade system, which seems really silly because why would you impose a cap and trade system in Alberta on the oil sands that already has a carbon tax system? Yeah. I mean, this is the, the the confusion in this is to a non-expert. There might maybe an economist someplace that can sort this out and explain how this is all rational and makes sense. But to this poor energy journalist who's been trying to understand this for the last five or six years, it makes no sense whatsoever. Well, I think that there's it, it, coming back to your 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 flag about uh, how this works with the oil and gas cap. Uh, I, I think it supports it in a number of ways. Um, one, like there's a number of changes uh, announced this week that are going to increase certainty for investors in decarbonization in the oil sand sector in, in particular and in CCUS uh, projects in general. Um, I think that's very helpful for landing an ambitious oil and gas cap emission reduction trajectory. Um, I think another uh, angle is like the, the think coming back to the four percent tightening rate uh, for just a sec. I mean, if you think about a, 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 like a simple linear path to achieve uh, net zero emissions in Canada by by twenty fifty, you'd have to. I mean, starting with today's um, 
free allocations like benchmarks uh, in the pricing systems, you'd have to reduce them about, you know, 4% per year, at least in order to achieve, you know, net zero uh, by 2050. So anything less than that, um, there's a risk that your, your demand for credits isn't going to keep up with the supply of credits as folks try to, you know, do their, you know, ambitious emission reductions. Um, so this 4% is good. I mean, the fact that they're, they're doing that for oil sands uh, aligns that sector's um, benchmarks with a net zero trajectory. I, I think I think that's good. Well, could, can you explain to our listeners um, why there might be a danger uh, of an oversupply of cheap carbon credits that could undermine the carbon price signal that would come from from tier? Sure. Um, I mean, kind of big picture, I, I suppose, as folks look at, um, you know, Canada's net zero plans and the expectation of, you know, existing policy and lots of new policies coming along and lots of investments to go with them uh, from industry and, uh, and, and government. Uh, to, to see you know, like really ambitious emission reductions uh, to keep us on a net zero path happen. Um, I mean, the pricing systems, the industrial carbon pricing systems are, are designed to, um, to recognize not just emissions, but those reductions um, that, that, uh, that go with those investments and, you know, try to keep a bit of a balance in terms of the requirements and as you, as, you, as you think about those requirements, if you go beyond them, you generate credits. And if you are lagging behind those requirements, you, you uh, got to pay compliance or you've got to buy credits from someplace. So anyway, like there's, a, there's a, a carbon credit market that's built into this. And if um, there is more supply of carbon credits coming from, you know, uh, you know maybe an unexpectedly high number of uh, emission reduction uh, projects getting done, then there is demand. Um, well, the, the markets get oversupplied and the value of the credits comes down. Um, so there's a few things in the uh, in these tier updates that help to deal with that. Um, one of them is the 4% tightening rate uh, for oil sands. That helps. Uh, increasing the uh, tightening rates for other benchmarks, like other sectors, uh, to 2%. That helps. Um, they increase the ability for uh, all facilities regulated in tier to use credits for compliance, uh, which is going to like soak up you know, more of the credits that are lingering out there. They reduce the expiry uh, period uh, for, for credits that are out there uh, down to five years. Uh, so again, that'll start to soak up some of the credits. And they did one more crucial thing for CCUS uh, to give them some, uh, I mean, potentially, you know, quite a bit more investment certainty. Um, they created a different credit class for uh, CCUS credits that, um, does two things. It allows them to stack uh, with CFR credits, uh, uh, federal uh, clean fuel regulation credits. So in a sense, I mean, that does double credit 
those emission reductions, but it, I mean, it, it adds incentive uh, for those, those CCUS projects. Uh, some of them probably need that incentive and some of them probably don't, uh, but it, 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 it does provide that. Um, but there's another uh, thing that they did um, that allows um, some of those CCUS credits to potentially get converted into direct emission reductions for the facility that's got the that's doing the capture. Um, so that means that they're valued. They would be valued at the headline carbon price, so not the value of the credit. So kind of whatever the carbon credit market does it wouldn't really matter because those credits would be converted into uh, like a piece of paper that is valued at, uh, at uh, say $50 or $170 or like whatever the, 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 the current headline carbon price is. So that's, that will do quite a bit for certainty of investment in CCUS and Alberta. Okay. Um, those of us who are not economists and I, I can imagine uh uh, if the some of our listeners are like me, they're trying to make sense of all of this because it is a little. If you're not into the nuances and the minutia of the regulations, it's a little confusing. So, just to back up a little bit and take a bigger, uh, you know, bigger picture look at this, my take on credits, based on you know in other interviews that I've done and what I've read is there's an, a possibility, there's always the op, the potential built in for uh, credits uh, to be purchased by the really bad emitters, the heavy emitters, uh, and actually slow down decarbonization. Now, I, that's my impression. It is, am I right or wrong about that? Oh, I, I understand the argument. That, uh, I mean, reducing the cost of emitting in a way uh, reduces the incentive to, to, to make reductions. But a, a flip side to the argument is that um, paying a compliance fee for, uh, for your emissions doesn't lead to emission reductions. But when you're buying a credit, for an actual emission reduction that was done by somebody, there is a there is an emission reduction associated with that. Sure, you, you paid a little lower price than if you had, you know, paid into the technology fund is what they what they call it when you pay the compliance the, like the full full freight compliance fee for uh, for emissions. So I mean, like credit prices are usually a little lower uh, than than what that headline carbon price is. So you, you're going to you're paying a little less to comply with the reg, but there is an emission reduction. How does that apply to the heavy emitters in the oil sands industry? So for, and especially at, at periods of high prices. And I, you know, most of the analysts that I'm reading these days are saying, look, there's, there's been since 2015, 2016, there's been chronic global underinvestment in exploration and production. We expect that because of that, we're going to see tight supply throughout the 2020s. And that, and then, of course, you've got OPEC Plus that's been ha quite happy to cut production back to, to maintain prices in the last couple of years. Um, so let's just assume for a second that we've got prices above $60, like maybe between $80 and $100 
that the oil sands are are receiving, then you know if I'm Syncrude or I'm one of these other you know heavy more emissions intense producers, I just say you know what, yeah, I'll I'm not going to invest in emissions reductions. I'm going to buy credits, and because I'm making so much money on a barrel of oil now, my costs are so low. And my, you know, my all my capital costs are paid off. My opex is is low, and uh, what do I care? I'm not going to I'm not going to invest in real emissions reductions. That's that's my concern. And is that a legitimate concern or not? No, I I mean, it is a concern. Yeah. No. I I uh, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, the um, I guess the the theory would go that the expectation of future carbon prices being higher uh, and that driving uh, future credit prices as well to be higher uh, is is one of the things that's driving those emission reductions you know like companies can build those expectations of higher future costs into the business cases to do those decarbonization projects and I guess it is a little bit of a uh, a head scratcher uh, sometimes that they they don't always you know do those emission reduction projects in the timely way we might expect. Um, but um, I think that again these these tier updates will will help. You know, like uh, to the extent I mean, uh, some in industry talk about the certainty of the. Uh, future carbon prices and future carbon policy being, you know, something that's been holding them back. Um, and I guess, you know, there's, there's kind of two uncertainties that I, I hear a bit about. One is the policy uncertainty and the other one is more like a market uncertainty around the market for credits getting flooded or, 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 or whatever. Um, and these tier updates, I think they, they help on both fronts. I mean, they, they show that, uh, I mean, Alberta has committed to follow the federal carbon price trajectory to, you know, get to $170 in 2030. That's that's a big deal. That's that's really good. Um, and uh, again, I mean, all of this tightening of the, the of the benchmarks and you know the the the, the, the way that credits are going to be managed and you know this what they've done with the CCUS credits, uh, those are going to help deal with that uncertain with that uncertainty barrier. And uh, hopefully we're going to start seeing the companies and the, in, and their decapitalization projects perform the way that you would, I mean, the, the homo economicus might, might, might have thought that they would have <laughs> uh, in their models, you know? Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's introduce a big wrinkle here. Um, there has been a lot of discussion in the last two or three years. Uh, I remember in, uh, interviewing uh, Professor Danny Cullenward from Stanford about his book, which argued, uh, it was a climate policy book, and he basically argued that while carbon pricing is a wonderfully elegant system, the problem is it too often uh, politics interferes, and therefore you have to combine carbon pricing with industrial policy. Well, in this context... 
what that means is carbon carbon capture utilization and storage. So basically you bolt on some equipment onto your facilities, you collect, you capture the carbon instead of venting it into the atmosphere. Then you put it into a pipeline, you send it off to a, a, a carbon sequestration field someplace, you know, down in Southern Alberta, maybe it's an old um, oil and gas reservoir, whatever, and you store it underground. And uh, now, if the companies were paying all of that price themselves, you could see how that, you know, those investments would fit into the the tier uh, 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 the tier program. The issue here is that the pathways, the oil sands net zero by twenty fifty pathways alliance, which is all of the big oil sands companies, they banded together and they've said, okay, decarbonizing by twenty fifty is going to cost us seventy five billion dollars. And you and I both know that, you know, these are mega projects, so it ain't going to be 75. It'll be 100 billion or whatever the number is going to be. We want government to pay two thirds of that. Two thirds. Now, granted, the oil sands are 60% of Canadian oil production, but $50 billion, goodness gracious. So not only are they, you know, so on the one hand, you know, they, you're, they're paying into the, the carbon emitters, they're paying the carbon emitter tax, maybe they're getting credits, maybe they're paying. Uh, and then on the other hand, they're going to gov the, the federal government primarily and saying, give us a bunch of taxpayer money to pay for the investments that we supposedly were supposed to be incented to make uh, you using the tier system. I, like, I'm sorry, that, no. Like it's one or the other, you know, it's, it's look, if it's going to be the carbon tax, let it be the carbon tax and make this thing work. And then they, they can make their investments. And, but no, the, the federal government's already given, you know, provided a 50% uh, tax incentive credit for some of this. And now they're talking about, you know, opening, opening up the federal treasury even wider and giving them billions of dollars more. In the in the uh, March, uh, you know, in the twenty twenty three uh, federal budget, so how do we square all the the request? You know, the oil sands coming with its handout for tens of billions of dollars, fifty billion dollars, and, and square that the that subsidy with the existing tier system. That's a huge question. That's and a fatal. I mean, that's a fatal pause, by the way. It is, <laughs> and I, I, I'm going to agree with you. I mean, like the um, there is already a large suite of policy measures in place uh, at the federal level, and I mean, some of them fall into the you know incentives space uh, to your point, and some of them fall into the industrial policy space to your earlier point. Uh, and I mean, some of those at the federal level, I mean, you point out the investment tax credits. So, I mean, there's the CCUS investment tax credit, the hydrogen, uh, there's the clean energy one as well. There's the clean fuel regulations, uh, credits, oil and gas cap is, uh, really important. Um, but formative. Um, and then there's, uh, possibly contracts for difference to help, you know, backstop uh, credit price risks that uh, the are being contemplated at the at the Canada Growth Fund. Um, there's the uh, federal carbon pricing uh, benchmark that sets the requirements for all of the provinces' carbon pricing systems to follow, and that's that's kind of what led to you know Alberta committing to the $170 uh, price trajectory. Um, so all of those things, yeah, but nonetheless. Uh, 
my sense is Alberta and industry, or sorry, if the federal government and industry were still looking to Alberta to sort of step up and uh, and, sh and and do more to incent. I mean, I guess the federal government felt like it had done enough. And, um, you know, many were looking to Alberta to say, well, what are you going to do? And um, I, hope, I, I personally think that um, these tier updates qualify as, as Alberta stepping up. And hopefully this is enough for industry to kind of get on with it. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 I hope it sends a signal that um, you know, maybe no more should be expected in terms of incentives for these big decarbonization projects, especially CCUS. And it's 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 time to invest. It's time to start you know announcing projects and uh, get things rolling. Here's one of the reasons why I've become really skeptical. I mean, I wrote a book in 2019. It was called the The New Alberta Advantage: Technology Policy and the Future of the Oil Sands. In it, I argued that. Going back to 2014, uh, when the five oil sand CEOs entered into secret uh, discussions with five environmental group executive directors that came to a handshake agreement around carbon pricing and methane emissions reductions and the 100 megaton a year oil sands emissions cap, and they all said, we get it. The, the, the future, we're headed into a low carbon future. And oil sands, uh, crude, heavy crude, has to be both cost competitive and carbon competitive. And they said, and they backed Notley's climate leadership plan in 2015. Four of those CEOs stood on the, the dais with her and, and supported her publicly and politically. And since then, I have become less and less convinced that the next generation of CEOs are as committed. Because we have basically seen a very small, you know, over the last six, seven years, uh, I think a relatively small uh, re reduction in emissions intensity. You know, it went down from 72 kilograms of CO2 per barrel to 68. But supply keeps going up. So now instead of being at 72, we're now at 80 megatons a year. And by 2025, we're going to be at 90 megatons a year. And, you know, if, if this does, if this policy doesn't arrest that growth, uh, because there's going to be another 500,000 barrels of supply coming on, on stream, who knows if we're going to get, we might get to hundred megatons a year by, by 2030. I, I think we should be, take the more cynical view at this point. So despite all of this pro proliferating policy and, and all of these incentives and the tens of billions of dollars that the industry is asking for, what have we got? Where are we at in 2022? Well, I'll tell you where we're at. We're, we're now, you know, 20, uh, 10 me uh, megatons a year higher, going to 20 megatons a year higher, maybe 30 megatons a year higher. And the industry has got everything it's wanted. It's got, a, you know, the government bought out a pipeline and, and approved another one. And, and it's got, and, and it's making record profits. I mean, the profit margin for this industry is right off the roof. It's, it's, it's sky high. And and yet, absolute emissions are not going down. And I'm I'm becoming convinced that all of this tinkering around the margins is getting us nowhere. You know, I mean, great. We so now we're up to four percent, and maybe that'll have some kind of an effect, and we're all going to pat ourselves on the back, and the CEOs will go out and you know strut around and and brag about how they're you know they're adhering to climate policy. 
but the, the bigger trends are going in the wrong direction. And the trends that need to change, you know, like we need to be at, you know, 50 or 55 kilograms of CO2 equivalent per barrel, not 68 on average. Anyway, I apologize for the rant, but there's a problem here. There's a problem. And the, the, the policy is simply not as effective as it should be, nor is it likely, in my opinion, to be as effective as it needs to be in a timely manner. Because we're losing, you know. So I'm skeptical as hell. And I think it's time, I think it's time Canada steps up and just says, we're done. We're, we're tired of listening to you. And either, you know, we're going to bring in something stringent and we're not paying and we're not subsidizing you and to hell with it. We're done. And, and so that's, you know, kind of where I've, I've arrived at. And, and now that I've, I've done my rant, I throw it over to you, Scott, for, for comment. I, uh, I guess looking for, for signs of, of progress and things that may have shifted since 2015, when uh, those, those talks that you led off with were reported to have happened. Um, uh, my, uh, my sense is a lot of the big organizations looking at, say, energy and uh, climate transition um, are, are, are coming up with, you know, a growing number of scenarios that show under, you know, relatively, you know, not net zero, uh, um, type policy conditions, you know, oil demand may peak uh, globally uh, in the next, you know, five, 10 years. Um, so that's new uh, since, um, since 2015. Um, quite a lot of the, the big net uh, oil importing countries around the world, uh, including the EU and East Asian countries have set net zero policies. And because they're net importers of oil, they're pretty well incented uh, to not increase their, um, if they've got to invest in something uh, to, to increase the you know, well-being of people, they, they'd rather invest in like domestic energy, like stuff that uses domestic uh, energy, um, and creates domestic economic activity rather than increase their dependence on imports, uh, like such as imported oil. So I think they're well incented to uh, to do what they said they're going to do in terms of net zero and shifting off of fossil fuels. Um, so I think that's new. Um, and um, here in Alberta, um, I guess um, the uh, the new premier, uh, uh, Peter Smith has talked about a made in Alberta uh, climate plan um, that uh, I'm, I'm kind of hopeful that these uh, these tier updates to, to the extent that they strengthen the pricing system in, in Alberta uh, are a sign of more to come um, that um, there, there, there might be uh, more carrots and sticks maybe uh, coming to incent like real emission reductions uh, and make them timely uh, in the oil and gas sector. Because to your point, I mean, we, we do need to bend the curve on those emissions. They have been going up for a long time, uh, despite the emissions intensities uh, coming down. 
I, I think so. Let's say that uh, you know we need more carrots and sticks. My goodness, in the course of this conversation, we've talked about half a dozen or eight carrots and sticks, and in fact, the, the way that they all interact, I'm sure there are you know. Uh, 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 compliance administrators in all of the companies and maybe someplace in government that could sort all that out into a spreadsheet and and show how it all works together. But, you know, for people like you and I to, to look at them and and try to make sense of them, it just, it looks like a dog's breakfast of regulations and, and various, uh, you know, uh, uh, carbon pricing schemes. And it, we're, we're layering complexity on top of complexity and which generally is not a good thing. I mean, that that's, I, in my opinion, uh, would likely lead us to not achieve the goals we're setting out here as opposed to the opposite. So the we, what we've done in this interview is we've talked about the the progression of carbon pricing, industrial emitter carbon pricing in Alberta over time. So basically over the last 15 years. And and how different governments have approached this, and and whether or not it's a good thing. And okay, now the federal government has reached. Uh, and and by the way, I should point out that the federal government has an equivalency agreement with the Alberta government on this, so that the Alberta scheme is compliant with the federal backstop uh, requirements. So this is this, that that is a good thing. I I would agree. You know, because lately you mentioned uh, Premier Smith, uh, Danielle Smith, and her sovereignty act, and her you know going to push back against the federal oil and gas emissions cap, for for example. I mean, this is becoming so incredibly complex and so politicized that uh, I fear that uh, we're uh, not headed in in the right direction. I I made that point several times already. Uh, in the course of this interview. So what are we to take away from this? I mean, okay, we've we improved things in the last little while. Have we improved them enough? Probably not. No. I uh, I think that, uh, and I, I, we gave this input to, to Alberta uh, when they were doing their tier review. Uh, in particular, um, we uh, we think that they needed a four percent tightening rate across the board. Um, I think that would align tier a lot better with uh, Canada's net zero goals and send a, a pretty strong signal uh, uh, that you know the system is designed to align with that. Then why not tighten it five or six percent and, no, and don't give them the forty billion? Yeah. Um, You could. Um, I guess the risk is that um, you increase carbon leakage um, by 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 going beyond. You know. Uh, but where is the leakage in the where is the leakage in the oil set? Now, look. If you want to argue, yes. if you want to argue, if you want to argue oil leakage in the conventional oil, I get that. I mean, you know, companies uh, in Alberta have been saying now for years. Well, we see the opportunities for better margins down in the Permian Basin in Texas, Texas, and they pick up, you know, like the old, um, oh, what was the old uh, Alberta Energy Company, and it became uh, in Canada, uh, and then it became something else, and it buggered off to to Texas, and that's the last we've we've heard of it. I mean, so the odd the odd bit of carbon leakage is is going to happen. Fine, on the conventional side, but the oil sands makes up sixty percent of all Canadian oil. And and those that's what what three or four hundred billion dollars of capital that's been invested in northern Alberta, 
ain't nobody picking that up and going someplace else with it. Nor are they going to abandon it because it's hugely, hugely profitable. So I fail to see that the carbon leakage argument applies to the oil sands. Yep, fair point. Fair point. Um, they they do have a lot more sunk assets, and it's not like there's that particular kind of resource uh, in a lot of other places. No. Okay. Well, look, I I I you know I was on on record uh, supporting the the oil sands company, but. On the assumption that there would be timely uh, commitment to this kind of stuff, and all I see is basically is is now Canada stepping up and Alberta stepping up to subsidize all of this nonsense, and and very little happening. So uh, I guess we'll leave it at that, Scott, because uh, we could grumble all day, and uh, it is what it is, and we'll have to see how this this works out over the next year or two. So thank you very much for this. Thank you very much, Mark. I'm, I'm hopeful that what we're going to, our, our big takeaway from, from all of this is we're going to see a heck of a lot of emission reductions happen by 2030. That's, uh, that's sure what I'm hoping. Well, I'm skeptical. I, I really, I really am. I've uh, been watching this, uh, this sector for too long, but uh, I'll, I'll let you be hopeful. So there we go. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Scott. Thank you very much, Mark. Take care. 